Hello and welcome to Big Ideas Into Action. This is WRI's podcast, Relaunched. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this episode, the big idea is access to energy, making sure that people, health clinics, schools, businesses all have reliable access to the electricity they need to flourish. So how big is the challenge? We still have almost 800 million people without access to electricity globally. And why does it matter? If you are delivering a baby or if you are giving vaccination, the lack of reliable electricity is going to affect those operations. And finally, what can we do about it? It turns out rather a lot, and you start with the data. As we say at the World Resources Institute, count it, change it, scale it. The sounds of a busy hospital in Jharkhand, India, the Nav Jivan Hospital. Its single-storey buildings are a critical centre for thousands of people. It relies on a secure energy source to power the intensive care unit and the operating rooms, right through to the refrigerators where vaccines and medicines are safely stored. But what happens if that energy source isn't secure? We'll be returning to this hospital later, but first, let's look a little bit more into the energy access challenge in India. As the energy program in India, we look at multiple things. We look at uh, how to use uh, energy access for socioeconomic development. We also look on issues related to renewable energy, energy efficiency. And finally, we uh, look at how to support India's growth while achieving the low carbon pathways in a sustainable manner. This is Pamli Decker, Associate Director for the Energy Programme in WRI India, based in Bengaluru. India has seen a rapid expansion of the grid, if you may say, and uh, 99% households, which is a huge number, uh, have already been connected to the grid, right? Uh, so this has uh, brought a lot of hope and happiness, in particular to the rural areas of the country, where there was a lack of electricity in the recent uh, years. But now things have really changed for the better. But at the same time, we must uh, be cognizant of the fact that uh, electricity access situation in the sectors at the institutional level, so for example, in healthcare, education and livelihood space, has not reached that levels of achievement. Um, and along with access to manpower, motorable roads, equipment and machinery, uh, access to electricity is a key input to achieving the outcomes across the three sectors, health, education and livelihood. And who does this affect in particular? This affects particularly the um, institutions uh, to begin with. So, for example, if electricity is not available in a hospital, it's the staff of the hospital who are affected because it affects their ability to deliver the services. Uh, for example, if you are delivering a baby or if you are uh, giving vaccination, if your hospital has a cold chain point for uh, storing vaccinations, the lack of reliable electricity is going to affect those operations. So on one hand, it affects the hospital staff, the hospitals, and the, on the other hand, it affects the people, the patients who come to these places for treatment. Uh, similarly, if you talk of the education sector, it um, affects the students who are uh, coming to these schools and colleges or training institutes for their training in multiple ways. Uh, for example, electricity is not just linked with uh, the ability of the schools to run the lights and fans, but also to you know make uh, sure that there is running water for sanitation and hygiene purposes, to uh, have clean drinking uh, water, purified water in these remote areas of the country. 
And particularly in the times of this pandemic, uh, we have seen that access to clean drinking water or access to running water has become a very important uh, thing to discuss and to kind of make sure it's available to maintain hygiene and sanitation. Just to kind of add to that, a lot of these schools are also being used as relief centers on a regular basis when there are natural disasters like floods and epidemics. So it's even more important to have electricity in these places. And finally, uh, last but not the least, in the livelihood sector, starting from irrigation to food processing or even preserving the food in cold chain storages, uh, we need electricity for all of these things. So access to electricity is going to help the whole farming community and all the people living in the rural areas who depend on agro and allied activities for their uh, survival. And where are you able to understand where the greatest opportunities are for making a difference? Because obviously India is, is, is a staggeringly enormous country and there must be a lot of demand. And yet matching up the opportunities with, with where the demand is and, and where the, the impact can be greatest must be one of the, the, the most difficult tasks. That's right. Yeah. There is government data which talks about the access to electricity situation across the country. And uh, there are some states which are doing pretty good. Uh, and there are some states which are energy poor. Currently, we are focusing on three important states in India, and there are three very geographically scattered states, but they present different problems and uh, different opportunities. So, for example, on the western side of the country, we are working in the state of Rajasthan, uh, which is uh, vulnerable from the perspective of droughts, water scarcity, heat waves. And we are also working in the state of Jharkhand, which is um, towards the east of India, uh, which is also a resource-rich state, but at the same time where there are a lot of communities which are right now uh, lacking in access to reliable sources of electricity, if you may see. Um, on the eastern side, we have been working in the state of Assam, uh, which is kind of the gateway to the northeast India, and which um, on a yearly basis suffers from severe massive floods, uh, which kind of uh, uproot uh, lacks of millions of people. We are working with the health sector here in Assam because... Assam is considered to be one of the energy poor state. This is Masfik Hazarika, who works on energy access for WRI in the state of Assam. There are a lot of remote locations where health centers, I mean, especially the small hospitals, you can say, are not getting reliable electricity. Then we have this COVID situation. People from village, rural area have to come to the nearest urban area for the treatment. In the education space, we are working with a state government education department where we are supporting them in electrifying 55 high school, again, in the remote locations. We are also uh, supporting various partners in the livelihood sectors in accessing the electricity, increasing their productivity. Because Assam is prone to problems like flooding, which can knock out access to the electricity grid and also force people to leave their homes, Masfix says energy access work is also critical to help when disaster strikes. Assam is a very flood-prone area. I mean, it's uh, experienced huge flood every year and a lot of property and a lot of lives are lost during those flood spells. So we are supporting this disaster management department. They have a lot of relief centers across the states and electrifying those because those relief centers doesn't have electricity. And this flood relief center where people during this flood come and take shelter and stay there. These are the people whose house and where they used to stay 
inundated by the flood water. 30 days without having electricity is really very tough because they have to depend on kerosene light or candle, which again contribute to the carbon footprint. So that's the situation in Assam. Now back to Pamli Decker. How does her team understand where there's the opportunity to improve energy access with the greatest impact? Right now, the grid has extended extensively to the remotest part of the country. Now it's a question of improving the quality of the power, and it's also about uh, doing the last mile connectivity when it comes to these uh, healthcare institutes, or for example, schools, or for example, uh, small pockets in remote areas where there is a food processing unit. The fact that uh, this is a situation also provides an opportunity to build back better while improving the services across the sectors that I have been talking about. We basically work with our partners to, first of all, understand the problems that they face, to understand what kind of challenges they face in terms of access to electricity or quality of electricity. And then from there, we work with them to design the roadmap if they would like to improve the quality of electricity or the access to electricity situation. We work on data, we work on technology, we work on finance, and we work on kind of putting these all of these units together to help in discussions around framing policies, programs, and schemes for improving the services which sit at the intersection of energy and development. Can you just give us a, a picture of the difference that this makes to to the people, to their ability to access services, etc., in the areas that you're working? So, for example, we have been uh, working with some of these health partners across these states, uh, particularly in the states of Assam and Charkhand, and these are health partners who have been facing these challenges on a day-to-day basis. There's a chain of hospitals across these states. And we have been working with them for the last two years to identify the potential solutions. They're all connected to their grid, but they have been facing some challenges in terms of power outages and voltage fluctuations, which affect their ability to run some of their services. And they also have been heavily relying on diesel generator sets. So basically, um, it not only is a impact on the environment, but also it has a negative impact on their ability to run their operation smoothly because it's quite a bit of a cost to run the diesel gensets on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, one of our partners in Charkhand, they have been actually at the epicenter of the whole uh, pandemic because they were selected by the government um, as a COVID-19 hospital. They have a dedicated COVID ward and uh, uh, intensive care unit and ventilators for treating COVID-19 patients. They had faced similar problems last year and in the years before this, they have been suffering due to lack of electricity. Uh, which has affected their ability to run some of these uh, critical equipments. But in uh, January 2020, they were able to uh, set up a 10 kilowatt peak solar system. So now this system is actually helping them uh, power up most of the critical needs which are required to treat COVID-19 patients. So this is a, a lot of hope in this particular scenario. They have this resilient infrastructure and they are self-sufficient to uh, run these services 24 by 7. Uh, Another example that I would like to share is actually of a hospital. Um, It's located on a hilltop in Assam. Uh, We worked with them to understand the need near their needs. We did conduct site visits, and then we also helped them raise funds with the help of which they have installed a 16 kilowatt peak system. So the hope is that now in the monsoon months, they will be more comfortable. Uh, The patients will have access to better services. And they will not really have to shut down any operations because during the monsoon months, there is ravaging rains and winds that you know pull down the electricity lines every year. So this is the kind of practical impact that we have been seeing on ground. I think one of the major impacts of our work is that we have seen increasing number of such conversations 
where the energy sector experts are reaching out now to the development sector experts and vice versa. And this kind of integration and from top to bottom or kind of vertically and and horizontally is very, very important to solve some of these challenges. Pamli Decker of WRI India. You're listening to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. This week on why secure access to energy is critical for development. Now, from India across to Africa, home to the vast majority of those who don't have access to reliable sources of energy. Benson Areri in Nairobi leads WRI's energy access work there. When people are speaking about access to energy, it's not just going to be access to energy for the sake of energy. Access to energy is important, but more importantly is how can we be able to provide access to energy that can be able to help in terms of improving the resilience and the livelihoods of the communities that you're working with. And that's the part that we are actually doing on the ground. And what kind of situations, what kind of challenges are you coming across on the ground that you're trying to add energy to to improve people's lives? In terms of agricultural production, there has been impact from climate change. What that means is that you, you'll find there are questions of drought almost every now and then. And so knowing that most of these communities that you're working with, uh, they quite rely on agriculture, for example. And so looking at how can we then be able to support value addition in the agriculture sector across the different stages of the value chain, that would actually provide a huge opportunity for employment creation and, and increasing income for these communities. The key thing that we are looking at how to do is how do we then support these farmers to actually then irrigate their farming? Also, how do we support these farmers to be able to add value into their produce? This can act as an opportunity for job creation, number one. But also number two, in terms of increasing the income or adding income for these vulnerable rural communities that we are working with. And what about uh, urban communities or private sector? Have you got any other examples that you might be able to tell us about? For urban communities, and more specifically, I think speaking even in terms of private sector, one of the examples that I can give you is some work that you're doing with Population Services International. So Population Services International has a network of 426 privately run health clinics. And so you'll find a significant population of those clinics, yes, they are connected to the national grid. But the challenge is because of that and reliability of the national grid, most of these health clinics have actually had to invest in diesel backup generators. Diesel, number one, is quite costly. That increases basically the cost of doing business. Most of the money that they're making is actually going to provision of power. But also number two, in some of the health services, which are sensitive to power cuts, again, they cannot be able to provide some of those services. Now, I understand at the minute, the stage that you're at is is gathering a lot of data to be able to take these projects forward. Can you explain exactly what you're trying to achieve, what the data's for, and what you're then able to, to kind of put together to be able to solve these challenges? Great. I will probably explain in terms of what WRI is doing and how different that is from the other organizations who are also playing a role in the sector. So you'll find most of the organizations, for example, who are supporting farmers, they have this appreciation that there's a role that, for example, integrating energy in the agricultural production would play in terms of increasing the agricultural productivity. However, none of them has been spending time, for example, to do a comprehensive value chain analysis to understand across the agricultural value chain, which stage provides the most strategic opportunity for integrating energy so that A, they can be able to increase the production of the, for the farmers, or B, to reduce the cost of production or the cost of doing business. For us, what we have been doing, especially with the farmers, 
is to actually unpack every single activity that goes into their agricultural production, right, from farming all the way to value addition and transport to the market. And you identify across all these different stages, where can we be able to provide energy and hence increase productivity? Or number two, where can we be able to integrate energy and hence be able to help farmers to increase, to increase the level of income? On the other hand, for the private health clinics that we are supporting, it's the same process. It's basically understanding, for example, across the health services, what are some of these services, for example, that are affected by power availability? How much energy, for example, do these clinics um, require on a monthly basis? How often is power interrupted? How can we then be able to actually support these, these clinics in terms of then installing um, solar PV? So that, of course, we can be able to help them, one, in terms of reducing their power interruptions, so that then they can be able to actually function almost 24 hours in a day, which, of course, should be the ideal way that clinics should be in a position to provide their services. Or number two, what are some of the additional health services that these clinics can be able to actually introduce once then we have provided them with an interrupted power? Benson Ereri in Nairobi. Now for the bigger picture. How energy access is so critical for development, for economic growth, we turn to Lily Ordano, Senior Associate with WRI's Energy Programme. The world is facing a number of crises. Um, We are seeing a global pandemic. We are standing right at the brink of an economic recession. And we see extreme weather events ravaging through communities and threatening the lives of many people. Globally, we are becoming increasingly aware of how interconnected our world is, and we are being forced to examine and to really think about the resilience of some of the systems that we depend on, like our energy system. The global community has made a commitment to achieve very ambitious, sustainable development goals by 2030. And these include goals in health, in education, in poverty reduction, in clean water and sanitation. These are all things which depend on energy access. But what we see today, even though between 2010 and 2018, there has been progress in energy access. So from 83%, we now have 90% of the global population being connected to electricity. We still have almost 800 million people without access to electricity globally and over 580 million of them are in sub-saharan africa do you think that this area has almost been overlooked in the past it almost seems quite obvious that if you don't have energy then you cannot have flourishing companies you can't have educational systems as good as they could be and all sorts of other things health you've just mentioned It's so obvious and yet it's missing. And I think the other side of it also is that even if we think of electricity systems in themselves, if you want to have a viable electricity market, you also need demand from these sectors to grow. So you need demand from agriculture, you need demand from health, you need demand from industry to survive. So it's interesting, it's an interesting two-way street, but um, there has been a disconnect in terms of how 
priorities have been pursued. It's not because we are not aware of it. It goes to really, really, really um, fundamental challenges with how data, the data that we use, with how planning is done, with our policies, with our institutional arrangements, with the structure of finance. How do we provide finance for energy access and development and with capacity issues on the ground? So these are deep underlying issues which are holding back a more effective integration of the energy and development sectors in ways which would help us to, you know, have really positive synergistic effects between the two. One of the things that I was reading recently suggested that when there are vaccines to COVID-19, one of the things that they're worried about in terms of equitable access around the world to such a vaccine is very simply that vaccines like this tend to be extremely sensitive to temperature. If there aren't fridges in health services uh, around fairly rural parts of Africa, for instance, that means that they will not be able to have access to what we're seeing now as as quite a a vital way of of defeating the whole COVID-19 problem. Absolutely. I I think that, you know, I think one thing that the the COVID pandemic has actually revealed to all of us is, is first of all, how interconnected our world is. Um, The fact that an issue which looks um, very local in expression can suddenly become a, a global issue and a global crisis. But I think that it's also leading us to really think about the resilience of, of our systems, particularly our energy systems, because what looked to us like a lack of access in, in a village here or there, in, in uh, somewhere in Ghana, somewhere in Kenya, somewhere in Tanzania, whatever it is, it's really now becoming something that's tantamount in the way of fighting a really serious issue, which is a global pandemic, which is how do we get vaccines to to places where they are needed, to the people who need them, if we do not have the refrigeration, we do not have the electricity or do not have um, the systems that can support um, refrigeration of these vaccines. So neglecting the the challenge of energy access in in rural areas and even sometimes in urban centers, because there are places where you have connections, but where the connections are unreliable, that this is really now threatening the ability for us to be well prepared, you know, to really stand against a global crisis. Uh, One final question. What is special about the WRI approach to energy access? Benson was telling me a lot about how important it is to collect the data, and it it sounded fascinating. Is, is, Is that part of the key to WRI's approach? Yes, that and a few more. I would say that um, in a typical developing country setting, you find maybe agencies responsible for electrification working in complete isolation from those responsible for health, for agriculture, and many more. And this also happens even in in the context of other agencies who are working in a non-governmental setting to meet these goals. And so what we try to do with our energy access work um, here at WRI is to try to integrate the energy and development those two goals in one so that energy is not seen as an add-on. Usually what happens is that people build their clinics, people do whatever they want to do, they build their schools and then think of energy as an input into that. But what we are saying is that there should be an intentional effort to integrate those two components strategically from day one so that as we build our plans for healthcare delivery, 
in there should be a solid plan for the role of energy in meeting those healthcare delivery goals. As we think of, of strengthening agricultural supply chains, in that strategy should be a clear role for energy in the strategy. It shouldn't just be an ad hoc add-on that we bring in after we have developed these other goals. That was Lily Odano from WRI's Energy Programme. Finally, in this podcast, the short moment where we hear from one of our colleagues on what it is that motivates them in their work. And in this podcast, it's time to return to Bengaluru and Pamli Decker. The way we work is we kind of spend a quite a bit of time on the ground, interacting with our partners at the grassroots level. And I think the fact that we have been able to change their lives for better, bring hope to their lives in the form of a better light, a better connections, which helps them further improve their quality of their services is, is, is so gratifying and it's, it's so kind of satisfying. You can see the smiles on their faces when we talk with them and when they see us as an organization coming in to help them. Small islands of change can actually inspire many more to contribute to this ecosystem of improving the quality of access to electricity to have better services across the sector. I think these small islands of hope are, again, kind of provide us a lot of hope and motivation. And and seeing that there is interest in this work, uh, seeing that people have benefited from this work, that itself is uh, enough motivation for us to, you know, keep going and to wake up every day morning and to see that, you know, what what is the next uh, excitement and the kind of next level of challenges that we can pick up to uh, solve some of these issues. Pamli Decker, ending this episode of WRI's Big Ideas Into Action with me, Nicholas Walton. This is the last in this relaunched series of WRI podcasts, which has taken in the sustainable ocean economy, restoration in Rwanda, how to solve water-based conflict, helping communities combat pollution, road safety, and now energy access. There'll be another series along in a while, and maybe the occasional special programme, when the occasion and events in the wider world demand it. If you go to the podcast bit of WRI.org, you can find back episodes. Or even better, subscribe to Big Ideas Into Action on whichever podcast service you use. That's it for this series. Goodbye for now. <laughs>